Let's turn together to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're in our strategy sessions as a church here at the beginning of our new church year. We're just asking again our master, hey, why do you have us here? What's a church all about? What should we be aiming for? What are we aspiring to as a church family? And so we're in these sessions. Last time we were in John 15 and that wonderful passage where Jesus told us, I am the vine and you are branches. And the real takeaway from that is who Jesus is to us. And he's simply everything to us, that Jesus is the source of life for us. Jesus is the source of all fruitfulness in us. And Jesus is the source of our joy. And aren't you glad for a savior who wants you to have his joy? And we saw that there in John chapter 15 last week. And so we also look at that, that logo of ours and we see that vine prominently there. And that's what that's about. That, that vine in our logo is a reminder. This is all about Jesus. We need him, love him. We're drawing life from, and everything else from him. Also that vine would help us to remember our tagline where we're rooted in truth and we're reaching in love. That idea that we're growing in both directions. We're growing deeper in him and his truth, but we're also wanting to reach farther with this good news of Jesus. So we're just considering together, what's a church? Are we a faithful church? And what are we aiming for in the months that stretch out ahead of us? Now, we all know that there are all kinds of churches out there. And churches have their own personalities. Maybe you visited churches before. You think that church just has a different feel to it than where I'm accustomed to going. And not all of that is bad at all necessarily. So let's think together. If you were planting a church in New York City... You would do that very differently, perhaps, in some ways, than if you were planting a church in rural Mississippi. Same gospel, if you're faithful, same Bible, same doctrine, but some of the style things are going to be a little different in those two. And we would say, as long as we're being biblical together, then we're sister churches, everything's good. And so that's normal. Have you ever heard about a cowboy church or a biker church? I don't hear about them so much anymore. Maybe there are a few still out there, but it was really uh, maybe 10 years ago. Or so I would hear about somebody starting a biker church or a cowboy church. And uh, even that I think is okay. So basically it would be a group of people trying to reach an American subculture. Maybe some folks who might not feel welcome here. They would be welcome here, but they might not know that they're welcome here. And so it would be uh, starting a group that maybe worships in a different style that might be favorable for them. And listen, as long as they're trying to exalt Jesus, they're being biblical in that, and they're aiming for biblical goals, we'd say, sister church, that's good. In fact, this is how our international missionaries function. When they leave here and go to another culture, you do know they're not trying to plant American churches. What they're wanting to do is plant indigenous churches. So they're going to learn the local language of where they've gone. They're going to share the gospel, make disciples. But when it comes time to gather a church, they're wanting to do that with local brothers and sisters in the local language. When it comes to music, they're not looking to bring American worship music over to the church there. They want local styles of music. So gospel lyrics that, that they will have, but into a form of music that fits where they are. This is how church planning goes. And the people there in that culture might not always sit in rows and chairs for the teaching time, might be more natural in some cultures to sit on the floor and in a circle for this time of teaching there and all that's good. 
In some cultures, it's much more exuberant. Now, we're going to talk about having a right emotion for God. We should be exuberant. But in some cultures, it's much more outward. And so there might be a portion of the worship where they are bouncing up and down and worshiping. And we say, as long as they're exalting Jesus and they're being biblical and they're aiming for biblical goals, we say, sister church, even though it might be done a little bit differently than we do it. So what are those biblical goals, though? that every church should be aiming for. And so we can think about four primary ones that we should be aiming to accomplish in the Lord's church. And so we would think first of all about worship and that's today's topic, but worship, certainly that should be happening in a church. Then another key thing that should be happening is fellowship. So that means that we love each other, that we're helping each other through life together. That should be happening in a healthy church. Another key would be discipleship that we're growing stronger in our knowledge of the word and in our love for the Lord. And then we would think about ministry impact that as we talked about last time, we're abiding in Christ. We need to then be bearing fruit. And so that's inside the body. God's given us spiritual gifts. We're going to serve in the body, but also beyond these walls, taking the gospel to our neighborhood and to the nations. So that's a, that's a lot of words there. And so how we have distilled that down and summarized them here, we use four E's here. And you've seen these around the church on the walls in various places. But let me just remind you what these are. So we talk about encounter. That's what we're talking about with worship. We call that encounter, then encourage, equip, and engage. And in our logo, you see the vine prominently. And we have those four blocks ascending there. And each of those blocks corresponds with one of those four E's. And that blue block there at the bottom, that's the one we think of. And it reminds us, oh yeah, we're about worship. We're about encountering the living God. That's that blue block there. So you know this, that not everybody who goes to a time of worship has the same goal in mind. Some people have goals that are far too low when they come to a moment like this. Some people have as their goal, well, I'm just going to show up. Isn't that what worship is? You just show up in the building and that's all I aspire to do. Some people have this mindset, well, I'm just going to endure the hour. Well, I don't really want to be there but I'm here. It's what you're supposed to do. And that's all God wants for me just to be in the place and I'll just endure it. In fact, is he done yet? <laughs> that's how that goes. So some people have the idea, I'm just checking in. And, and so I'm coming here and re the reason I'm coming is I just want credit from God. Maybe there was a season of your life like that. Maybe you're in that season right now. Why, why are you like somebody to ask you, why are you here? I'm just here for the credit, you know, cause I don't want to be here. You might even be having a conversation with God right now. God, you know, I don't want to be here, but you've got to give me credit because I came here. You know, you owe me something. If I'm going to give up this hour, I could be sleeping. Aren't you pleased with me? Give me credit. And that's a low view of worship. That's not biblical. That's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? God is offering you so much more than an hour that you're just sitting in a room. So my prayer is this, that you and I will respond to this text in John 4, that you and I will raise our expectations of what it is that we come here to do each week as a family of believers, that we want to have nothing less to enjoy God's presence, to be transformed in the presence of God every time we worship privately and every time we gather together as his people. Now we got two key verses here that we're gonna look at now and we're gonna come back to throughout the message. And that's verses 23 and 24. So look at this with me. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit 
and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Great verses. We'll come back to those, but first let's drop back and let's consider the context. Let's consider to whom Jesus said these wonderful words about worship. And we see this context in verses one through six here in our chapter. It's Jesus, we're told on his way to Galilee, goes through an area called Samaria. And you may know if you've been around the Bible for a while, there's animosity between the people of Samaria, the Samaritans, and the Jewish people. In fact, it'll be called out here in the text that we're going to read in just a moment. But Jesus, very intentional, as we're going to see, not just going through Samaria, he had a plan that day to go to Samaria, to a particular woman who was going to be there at the well that day. So let's see it together now. John 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And here's the explanation. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus is at this well in this city in Samaria, talking to this woman and naturally at a well, what are you going to talk about? Talk about water. And verse six tells us that Jesus actually needed a drink. So he, yes, fully God took on humanity in the womb of Mary. So in his hum humanity, he would drink water. He would eat food. And so he's thirsty. He comes to the well, but he's really there for something far more than a drink for himself. As we see clearly, he has something he came to offer to this woman. Notice again, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then Jesus even expands that in verse 13 saying, I would give you water that will spring up in you like a well leading to eternal life. So she came for water. Jesus said, I, I came to give you something you didn't even know was possible. He uses that term living water as a way of talking about eternal life. I could give you something that would change your eternal destiny, but also give you an abundant life here as the Holy Spirit would work in your life. She knew she needed water, but Jesus is bringing her something she never could have imagined, but she's still not grasping it yet, is she? She says, hey, give me this living water so that I don't have to come back here and get water anymore. She's thinking Jesus is offering some magic water. Wouldn't that be nice? I have something to drink here and never have to drink again. I don't have to have this laborious task of showing up to get water. That's what she's got in mind. She's missing everything. She's not aware of her need here. But then look what Jesus says next, verse 16. He's going to expose the need. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus here goes deep. She's not understanding the whole talk about water. He goes right to her most intimate parts of her life here, exposing her past and her even scandalous present here. This woman had issues. And if you've ever studied this passage before, the commentators will make up the point about how here's a woman, she's at noon at a well there, and that's just not when people would go get their water at the heat of the day. People would normally go in the morning when it was cool or in the evening when it's cool, but to go draw water in the middle of the day, why was she doing that? And she's there alone. She's not there with the other women gathering water. It appears that she's trying to avoid other people. She, in an, in an outcast people, she seemed to be an outcast among the outcast. People knew about her five husbands. People knew about the arrangements now where she's living with a man she's not married to. People understood that was sinful then, even as that remains something sinful now. But notice this, Jesus, fully aware of all of her failures, comes intentionally to that well at that specific time to meet that specific woman. Isn't that amazing? This is the grace of God. Jesus is not one who's trying to avoid this woman. He goes to that town at that time because he wants to be there with that woman to offer her a new life, this living water. All this was Jesus's idea. Somebody here might say, well, that didn't seem fair. This woman was really a woman fully corrupted in sin. Why would Jesus offer something to her? That's the whole point. You and I are no better than that woman. We might have a different mix of sins in our lives, but, but listen, we're just as sinful. Our sin mix might just be different than her, her sin mix. In fact, if she knew some of the things that you and I had done in our past, maybe some of our present, she might go, ooh, that makes me blush what you've done. But we look at hers and go, wow, this, this lady was far from the kingdom of God. But I want you to hear the grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus. He's not avoiding her. He could have skipped Samaria. He goes there to that town, that well, that time for her. You and I should be just as humbled. Why would you do that for her? But why would you do this for me? Why would you forgive all my sins? You ever had this thought, Jesus, why'd you even notice me? Of all the people on earth, why, why me? It's just stunning love. It's stunning grace that he's available. And he's offering the same thing to us that he offered to this woman. I could give you living water, meaning I can give you eternal life if you'll take it. I could give you an abundant life and you need it. So here's a woman. She's stunned. Jesus has just exposed her five husbands and her current living arrangements. And she blurts out something. Look at verse 19. This is the woman's response to having everything exposed. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That would be a good deduction there. How did you know everything about me like that? You're not from here. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Many wonderful things happening in this passage, but I want us to hear, as we're talking about worship, glean several important principles here related to worship. And the first one is this one, worship genuinely, worship genuinely. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, you got to worship in spirit and in truth. In fact, let's start with the word truth here. If we're going to worship genuinely as God requires us, he says he's, he's looking for these types of worshipers. It's got to be in truth. So the woman here brings up a mountain. Jesus exposes all her, her life and all of her failures mercifully because he loves her. She starts talking about which mountain to worship on. That seems kind of random, but it's not inconsequential there in their time. So Jerusalem was the right answer. That's where they should have been worshiping under the old covenant in the temple there. So the Samaritans were wrong and Jesus calls it out. You, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus lets you know you have been worshiping wrong, but he lets you know, but those days are now over. That's old covenant. Now we're in the new covenant. And now it's not about what mountain or what building you're in. Now it's about me. And the father is seeking true worshipers. So let's, as we think about that, what's that look like in our context? Because we are in the new covenant. What does it mean? Well, to be a true worshiper, we need to worship biblically. The Bible is the test of what is true, what's false, what we should embrace, what we should avoid. And so here at Staples Mill, we're just affirming as we think about worship, we want to worship in truth. It needs to be in accord with what the Bible teaches. So let's talk about our music a second. Our worship leaders, so Jim Corson at the eight o'clock service where we sing hymns and Chip here in these two services, 9, 30 and 11. Don't you love that the music is beautiful and, and it is fun. I love our music. And when the choir sings, love that too. But more than the beautiful melodies, what's the biggest concern for them who lead us in musical worship is the truth. Are these lyrics truthful? In fact, wouldn't it be distracting if we were singing beautiful melodies and then we'd get to lines and go, oh, but I don't think that's true. And so they don't put us in that spot. They'll just lead us to songs that lead to truth. I've been in places like that, maybe at a conference or previous churches and you're singing along and then something in a lyric comes through and you think, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's biblical. And so I don't get mad about it. Well, if I'm visiting somewhere that happens, I'll just sing along. When it gets to that part, I don't think it's quite right. I'll just pause. And then when that unbiblical part finishes, then I'll join back in again. That's how, that's how I've coped with that. But we don't, we don't have those issues here because it matters truth and it matters deeply to Chip and to Jim for the eight o'clock service. Same thing with our messages. What are we going to talk about when we're here? What kind of sermons? They're going to come from the Bible because the Bible is truth. And of course, I'm going to try to illustrate and apply and all that. But, but what are we anchored to? What are we trying to bring up and talk about? It's the truth of God's word. God has given us his word that we would feed on the scriptures, that we would grow strong in him. Worshiping in truth also means that we're going to try to avoid unbiblical practices. And so maybe you've been in churches, maybe previous places where they, they get real excited about some new things. And um, Joy and I, I remember visiting family years ago, would visit a particular church with some family members and uh, a lot of sweet people there, but there were a lot of unbiblical things. Some of the things that they were chasing, it would seem like they looked for a different experience, a different experience every time we were back up visiting. And so one time we visited, look, everybody wanted to shake. So they're, they're worshiping, the songs were beautiful, the songs were fine. But everybody in the room was trying to get some kind of shake going. And I think they felt like the Holy Spirit's moving in that way. I want him to do that for me. And so there was this young man in front of me. And I remember, I don't know what was going on in his mind. Um, but I, was, I felt sorry for him because I felt like this kid wants the shake that he feels like some others are getting it. Like if God's doing that for them, Lord, give it to me. So he's trying to work up 
I thought the whole thing was just sad. Where, where would you ever find such a thing in the Bible? You never find any occasion when Paul's planting a church that everybody was in there shaking. Now there's an earthquake <laughs> caused that, but not you working up a shake. I've never been in a church where they do this, but I've certainly seen it on uh, so-called Christian TV a good bit where people are slain in the spirit. You ever seen that? That's entertaining to watch right there. Uh, just you got, you have no biblical examples of something. So I think famously, I guess Benny Hinn's still out there not recommending it. Bad, bad teaching, weird practices. But he's the guy to be up there on a stage and wave his sport coat and half the people fall down. People on the other side, I want some of that. So he might blow in their direction and then they go down. And you think, wow, that's, is that God? What is that? And so we go, I don't have any basis for anything like that in the scripture. You ever see that? Paul never talks about, has everybody who's been slain in the spirit? You need to be slain in the spirit. This is not biblical. So we're, we're not trying to introduce things like that. There is one occasion in the Bible where people were slain and that's Ananias and Sapphira. If you know your Bible in the book of Acts, they, they went down dead and they didn't get back up. And everybody went, nobody was saying, I want some of that. That was a, that was God choosing to give immediate judgment for sin in that occasion. So just saying, we're not trying to introduce strange things. We might hear about somebody doing something in Toronto or they're doing something else. Like if it's not biblical, we want nothing to do with it. The other thing we're trying to avoid obviously is bad teaching and false teaching is rampant in America and sadly exported around the world as well in other nations. And so notably we have, and will always avoid what's called the prosperity gospel. And I bring it up with some regularity because we need to be alert to that. It's unbiblical. The idea that if you're faithful and if you give a lot of money, then you'll never be sick and you'll never be poor. You'll be rich. And it's not a biblical teaching. Goodness, Paul was not rich. And Jesus, even on the earth, although he owned everything, did not live that type of life. And, and so we don't teach such things. Neither do we endorse what's now being called progressive Christianity. So you'll see church websites, some other churches, well, they'll say we're a progressive Christian church. And what they mean by that is that is this. We've left the Bible when the Bible talks about morality, what's marriage, what's, what's, what's sexuality. We don't go with what the Bible teaches. We're progressive. We've, we think the culture has got it and we're going with them. They'll, they'll use other words, but we're not that. That's false teaching. Jesus said the ones that the father is seeking to be worshipers, they must worship in spirit and truth. We have to be in accord with the scripture. Listen, another aspect of worshiping truth is just being honest when you come to worship. Here's this Samaritan woman. She's out of well thinking she's coming for water. And Jesus in a moment lets her know, I know everything about you. I know everything you've ever done. I know what you're currently doing. And in love, he's coming toward her anyway. You and I don't want to act like, well, I can come to worship and fake God out. I'm going to get that credit and he's going to overlook all this stuff in here. No, we, we come open. Might as well acknowledge it. That's what confession is. Lord, you already know all this about me. You know where I'm hurting and I bring my hurt to you. Lord, you know where I'm discouraged. I bring my discouragement. You don't have to fake like I'm always happy. Lord, you know where I've been sinning and I need your grace and forgiveness. Please forgive me for these things that you have exposed in me. God, I know I'm going to be facing temptations this week. And in these ways, God, would you help me to overcome this week? And these, we, we need to be worshiping in truth, bearing our souls before the Lord. He wants to help us here. So come humbly, come honestly in worship. So we want to worship in truth, but also we worship in spirit. Let's go pick that up. Worship in spirit and in truth. So we're relating to God who is spirit. 
And this is one of the other ways that we and our Mormon neighbors differ dramatically. And so I just want to remind you on purpose, let's just take a moment with the Mormon temple coming up down the road. We don't hate them, but we neither do we regard them as Christian. They're not Christian. Joseph Smith was a false prophet, started that very different religion. Don't let the names and terminology fool you. Many differences. In fact, we sent you an email uh, a, a month or so ago with some of the key differences between biblical Christianity and what Mormonism teaches, just so you'd be alert, not deceived there, and have some talking points to help a Mormon neighbor, hopefully over time, come to the truth. But here's, here's an issue where Mormons, another issue where they're in error. Mormons teach that God the Father was once a human being on another earth, and he lived such a good life, he was exalted to be God over our earth, along with a heavenly mother, and that's the God of the Mormons. That's not the God of the Bible. Now, I, I bring this up here in this context because Jesus says here, not that God the Father has flesh and bones, which is what the Mormons teach. God the Father is spirit. See it again, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, when we're worshiping, if it's biblical worship, our spirit, our soul, if we want to call it that, we're, we're in a communion. We're encountering a living God who is a spirit. So this is a very spiritual thing that we're doing. Said another way, this isn't merely an external thing that we do. These aren't rituals that we do. Our heart's not in it, but we do these rituals and somehow God's happy. We're not seeking mere formalities and mindless rituals when we worship. We want to worship God. God expects from us what we give him is worship in spirit and in truth. Now, let's say this. All rituals are not bad, are they? I think we all have some routines in life. They're not all bad. Um, having a good routine is what helps you remember to shave if you're a guy in the morning. Because you get out of whack, sometimes you might show up at work. Oh, I forgot to shave. I came to work one time with my slippers on. Uh, <laughs> I must not have gotten out of, I mean, I think I, once I stepped out of the car, I saw it, drove home and got my shoes, but you get out of your routine, sometimes you get messed up. So routines aren't bad. We have some in the way we do church on Sunday. We typically do things in a certain order, but we work really hard that our hearts and minds stay engaged. It's not just going through this thing. Here's an example. When we have communion together, what we typically call the Lord's Supper, there's a way we typically do that. We mixed it up a little bit when we went to the little packs, but, but I know this, every time for 16 years, and even when I pastored three years before I right out of seminary, I always use 1 Corinthians 11 as the text that I'm going to use to lead us through. But I work hard in those moments to remind us this is about us being forgiven of our sins. This is the amazing sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. So there's nothing mindless about the repeating of certain things. I mean, we are, we are in that. But we're making the point here that we don't want to be external focused. Anything that we do, we need to make sure, is my heart in this? Is my mind in this? Because we as human beings are prone to get distracted by the outward. So some people can get really upset about what clothing you wear to worship. Now, we've long since passed that, made through that. But, you know, you remember some people like if you're not dressed up, you're not giving God your best. And I love the heart of that. I love the intentionality. Like, I just want to give God my best. But people have to be reminded your best has nothing to do with what clothes you're wearing. First century, they didn't have special church clothes. And so to, to require special clothes for worship is adding something extra biblical, even if the motives were good for that. And so we all relaxed ourselves. In fact, think about now, if we made people dress up in dresses and suits and ties for church, people are welcome to wear it. But if we made people, people would have to go shopping because you don't need it for work anymore. It's only weddings and funerals. 
where you dress up. Sometimes at those. So we wouldn't want people having to buy different dresses, different suits for worship. In other words, we're not focused on the external. God says worship in spirit and truth. Another area where people have gotten tripped up in the past is styles of music. And this was particularly true maybe in the late 70s and 80s, what were known as worship wars. Those words should never have gone together, worship wars. But people had a hard time letting go of one style of music to, to affirm that God could actually work in another style. And look, we're, we're past that here, praise God. We have this wonderful eight o'clock service where we worship with hymns and the Holy Spirit's there. And then in these two services, more contemporary, we worship in these styles and the Holy Spirit's here. And so we're not, a, we're not in a either or tug of war on things like that. So people are prone to getting sidetracked and distracted by their preferences, likes and dislikes. And Jesus said, you, you need to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You and I, when we worship, we should be seeking something, a spiritual encounter with God. We're engaging him. Think of it. I want to encounter him and I want to engage him with everything that I am, with my mind fully engaged and my heart fully engaged. And that brings us to emotions. So we said earlier, we're not trying to hype you up with emotionalism, but we should have emotions, right? If you're in the presence of almighty God, something should be firing off in your heart. There are appropriate emotions in worship. Years ago, Joy and I were in a little church in North Carolina. I was the student minister in this church. And so very traditional and there was the choir and we loved these people. But I remember this particular Sunday, they were singing the song, set my soul afire. And there's that line there, set my soul afire, Lord, set my soul afire, make my life a witness. It goes like that. So, but that sweet little choir up there, they had a disconnect between the words they were saying and their faces. And so it's hard for me to do it, imitate it, because I'm prone to smile when I imitate what they did. But it was basically, set my soul afire, Lord, set my soul afire. And so it was like, that's weird, you know, and um, I shouldn't have done it. I should not have done it. But I nudged my young wife. I said, Joy, look, look. And I pointed to the words, pointed to their faces. And I said, they look like they need their souls set afire, you know. Um, <laughs> Shouldn't have done it. That was immature. I admit it in front of everybody. But also say I'm guilty of that too. You ever been there singing a song, great song, and uh, your mind just goes somewhere else? That's probably what happened to them. They, they, they love Jesus, but their minds were somewhere else. And I can do that. And we're, like sometimes we're singing, we're singing about the cross. I think, what, what am I doing with my mind on something else when we're talking about Jesus taking a crown of thorns for me? And so my heart, I had to sometimes bring my heart back to what we're saying. So what we're just saying is worshiping in spirit is we need to mean what we're singing. It didn't mean what we're saying. And if we're not doing that, we could get ourselves into some trouble. There is such a thing as dead orthodoxy, where a person can get really good, tight theology without a heart for God. It becomes academic to them. I don't know if it becomes a, a pride thing, like I got a tight theology, I know the Bible. And then, but where is your heart? Because listen, it's good. You, you, you understand I'm saved by grace through faith. It's not by works. And we can get really staunch there. And we should be. That is the gospel. But when you start talking about grace, your heart should start to smile. I'm not saved by my works. Wow. I'm saved by grace. What an amazing savior. And so there should be right doctrine. Absolutely. With right affections firing off when you have such great truth that you know. And so that's what we're saying. And that's what I think Jesus is getting at. We're worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so let me ask you this. Do you love Jesus? Love him. Do, do you love him? Are you awed by him? 
Like, you are amazing. If you haven't been awed by him in a while, uh, maybe read the early chapters of the book of Revelation and see him in all of his glorified status and how he's going to come again. It's like, wow, I'm awed by him. Think about with me, how about Isaiah 6? Remember Isaiah went into the temple and the angels are there and holy, 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 and he's in awe. He's afraid. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And God touches him and forgives him. By the end of that experience in the presence of God, a real encounter, he's like, here am I, send me. So we're just talking about spirit and truth, worshiping genuinely, not letting it become head or heart. It's your head and your heart there. Listen to Psalm 150. There's joy here. Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing, loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. There is awe, there is delight in the presence of God. So worship genuinely. We'll do these next two real fast. Secondly, come expectantly. Worship genuinely. Come expectantly. So knowing that you're coming to gather with God's people for worship should do something for you. It should change how you arrive here. The point being, don't aim too low for worship. If your idea is this, I just want a little social interaction. I'll think I'll come to church. I'm so glad you'll get social interaction. That's a byproduct, but, but come for something because God, something more. God has something better for you than just some social interaction. I just need a little encouragement. I'll come to church. You'll get encouragement. But God has something much more for you himself. I just need a little pep talk. I need a little inspiration. I hope you'll be inspired, but God is up to something more, a real encounter. Look at this woman at the well. Just thought she was coming for water. Jesus said, how about some living water? How about a brand new life? How about eternal life? This is what God is up to. So come thirsty for something more than just a little something. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She didn't know who she was dealing with. When we come for worship, we know. We know it's Jesus. She even brings up the Messiah here. You know, when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things. Jesus said, I am, I am the Messiah. We already know that when we come to worship. We should come on in expecting God to do great things, great fulfillment as we come to him. Real practically, as you think about how you come to worship, listen, worship him all week yourself. Let there not be a day where you're not worshiping him, enjoying him, having encounters with him in his word, in prayer, singing to him all week long. Then on Saturday night, can I suggest turn in a little earlier? If you're one who stays up late, it makes it hard to get up, hard to stay awake and worship. Go to bed a little earlier. Arise on Sunday morning. I'm getting to gather with God's people. I get to worship the Lord. Come with some excitement and expectancy of what God's going to do. So we're going to worship genuinely if we're going to worship in spirit and truth. Because we're going to worship in spirit and truth, we're going to come expectantly. But then finally this, we're going to leave differently. We're going to leave differently. And look what happened in this woman's life. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Now look down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This is what we desire every time we come together. I want to have a genuine transformational encounter with my savior. And I want to leave here with a changed heart. I want the Lord to change me while I'm here. I want to know him better, but I want to leave here on a mission. I want to leave here with joy. Here's a woman, her life had been changed and she had a joy she could not keep to herself. She takes off. This woman who was trying to hide from people, now she's seeking them out. She's met the Christ and they have come to believe it themselves. So last time we talked about that, that Jesus is the vine. If we're going to bear any fruit, it starts by being with him and staying with him. Here's another example of that. We're in the presence of God. We draw a life and strength and joy from him. And now we go out with joy with the message. Same thing with Isaiah. I'm in his presence. Now, Lord, here am I. Send me. We're changed and we're moved when we spend time with the Lord. So leave here changed. Leave here commissioned. Leave here overjoyed in Jesus. Leave here full of hope and be ready to share the gospel like we see the Samaritan woman do. But your first act of worship is this one, if you haven't already. Bow to Jesus, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge <clears throat> that he alone is the one who forgive you. It was Jesus who died on a cross for you. That's amazing. It was Jesus who was raised from the dead. And he's the one who said, if you believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll have eternal life. There's your first act of worship, to receive that gift that he wants to give you like this woman received it. Would you today follow her example? I'll take that. I want this living water. I'm thirsty for you, Jesus. And then become a spirit and truth worshiper for the rest of your days.